First Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. I Again, thankful for the opportunity to take the time and look into God's Word. And uh, I hope and uh, that as we do that, that the Word will shape our lives. I know one of the nice things about preaching in places where they preach the Word is that people come wanting to hear the Word. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that this morning, that we have an opportunity to, to just look into the Scriptures and uh, seek to understand what God's will is. I said last night we looked at why, that, that we should pursue purity because we have promises from God and because we have an awe and reverence for God. So confidence in Him and reverence for Him motivate the pursuit of purity. And, and it's important to make certain that we're not... Uh, we're not ignoring the internal component of this, right? If we try to fight this fight all from the outside, we will not have the resources needed. It has to come from a heart which has experienced the grace of God and therefore has come to trust in His promises and to have a reverence for Him that causes us to have a deep internal yes toward Him. And that's how we can say no toward the things that he hates. And, and those same things are the things that will destroy our lives. Uh, as I said last night, you, you know, the early church, we can sometimes, uh, I think, sometimes uh, give it a little bit too much of a gloss, right? We, and it's good. We want to be, you know, we want to be like the early church. Um, in many ways, we'd say yes. Right, but then sometimes we go. So, like, which one, Corinth, or just about all of them, because they were sinners saved by the grace of God in the midst of a pagan world, uh, that there were problems. I mean, it's it's never been uh, it's never been a sanitized world, right? It's always been a sinful one. And so to to follow Christ is going to put you cross grain and to come out of pagan environments, uh, which had, if you just take Romans one, uh, clearly surrendered to idolatry and immorality. There is going to have to be a a lot of work uh, to disciple people. And so Paul writes about that. And the church at Thessalonica is a model church, an example to us, chapter 1 says, but, but it's also one in which the Apostle Paul had to lay out pretty clearly what God's will was in this area, because God's will stands in stark contrast to the value system that they had, had lived under as, as people who uh, had suppressed the truth of God and had substituted false gods for the true and living God. So once chapter 1 says you've turned from dead idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son, Jesus, who rose from the dead, is coming back to rescue us from the wrath to come, that that, that was now a, a, a change in them that had to do with this whole area of purity. And one of the most extensive passages that we find from, from, from in the Word of God about this is what Paul writes to the Thessalonians here in chapter 4. I'd like to read verses 1 through 8, and we're just going to work our way through it this morning. 
Finally then, brethren, 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel, excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Right? So we're a conference on purity. I think you can see why this text would be chosen in that regard. Verse 3 talks about sanctification. It talks about sanctification in verse 4. It talks about sanctification in verse 7. Right? This reality that God has set us apart for himself and that we're to pursue that. And it's under the heading at the beginning of the chapter that we would know how to walk and please God. So if I were going to give it a title, it would be pleasing God by living purely, that we are to live a life of purity. And I want us to just walk through this, uh, seeing the weight of Scripture has. So let's start in verses 1 and 2 with the exhortation regarding God's will. And I'm just going to highlight a few things about that. The first is its affection. Notice he says, finally, brethren. Finally, brethren, we, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. And I think those two statements, brethren and in the Lord Jesus, are Paul anchoring what he's saying in their shared relationship to Christ. Right, so this is something written to those who share in Christ. They're brothers. They're a part of the spiritual family, and they have a relationship with the Lord. Right? And, I, and I said this last night. I'll probably say it this session, the next one. Right? It, you, you can't genuinely pursue the kind of purity God wants unless there's a preceding work of God's grace in your life which gives you a, a new heart, a new birth, that, that gives you a standing with Him of the righteousness of Christ. So, so not in any way should you be thinking, I pursue this somehow to earn God's favor or to achieve a standing with God. This is a powerful and pointed exhortation that is for the family. His brethren in the Lord. Right, we are we are brothers in Christ, and He's urging upon them this. Right, notice He uses the languages request and exhort uh, to I think stress the brotherly nature of the appeal. Think of the Apostle Paul sitting down next to you, sort of putting his arm around your shoulder and saying, "Listen, brother. Okay, in the Lord, I want to urge you to pursue this." He's trying to call us to a life that honors the Lord. And, and so there's an affection to it. And I think that's, 
important to recognize. Uh, sometimes we, are, you know, sometimes we need, you know, we sort of need somebody to sort of put their finger in our chest and get our attention, right? But a lot of times, what we need is someone to say, "Hey, like we're 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 in a fight, we're in a, a long march toward Christ likeness. Keep keep going. Don't don't quit. Don't don't give up. Don't surrender to it." Notice the aim of the exhortation that you how you ought to walk and please God. You know, walk is a a way of describing the conduct of the Christian life, right? So he's saying, listen, I want you to conduct your lives in a way uh, that this exhortation is aimed at, and that's because I want you to have a life that honors or pleases God. Right, and and so I want to take a moment to think about this because uh, sometimes uh, sometimes uh, we get confusion, right? So so when we talk about pleasing God, we are not talking about for believers. We are not talking about trying to earn His favor, right? If we are in Christ. We have been granted a standing in Christ, of Christ's righteousness, and, and we always enjoy the favor and mercy of our God. We're His. Right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But, but we also have to recognize that in terms of Scripture, the actual growth in godliness is something that God calls us to recognize that we are, for instance, take language of Ephesians 5.10, we are trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Right? There are things that are not pleasing to the Lord. Right? So, so if anyone takes the standing we have in Christ of justification and washes it over the Christian life in such a way that says, you no longer have to worry about trying to learn what pleases God. You can just do your thing. Right? They're out of step with the kind of practical growth as a Christian we're called to, where the things that matter to God matter to us. Right? We begin to have the heart of our Father about these things, and we want to grow in them. Right? And and so Paul's going to talk to them about a path of obedience that would be honoring or pleasing to the Lord. They should want that. Right? That's what they should do. And 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 as believers in Christ, we have to really think carefully about this because we need to recognize there are some people, and you would know this up in the same thing in our area. There's a lot of people from from religious backgrounds of works righteousness. And and what they hear you say is, well, you got to do these things in order to get to heaven, right? Or you got to do these things to sort of appease God, who's angry with you, and and they shift the burden of their standing with God to their own righteousness instead of having a confidence in the obedience of Christ and the satisfaction of His righteousness, right? So that's one ditch on one side that we we have to desperately avoid because souls hang in the balance about it, right? But we also have to be cautious about running so far to the other side of the road 
that we actually start to ignore clear passages like this that say there is a kind of life of a believer that is pleasing to God and a kind that is not pleasing to God as his children. Right? That we want to do what honors God, to walk and please him is actually the goal of our life. Paul said, whether, whether uh, absent or in the body, our ambition is always to be pleasing to him. Right? His, his heart was, that was the control of his life. He said about the good soldier that he lives to please the one who called him to be a soldier, 2 Timothy 2.4. Right? So he has this, his eyes set on the fact that he loves God in such a way that he wants to live in a way that brings honor to him, that God delights in him in that regard. And, and that's why often you have Paul saying things like to walk worthy of the calling that you've received. It's not that you pay back it, but that God's given you this rich uh, relationship with him. He's established for you a, a grace in which you stand. So appreciate that. Have the wonder of that control your life. Let the love of Christ constrain you because you see that since he died for all, those who died ought to live for him. All right, the purpose of my life is now for Christ. And that becomes the way in which I look at my life is, is it oriented toward honoring him and showing him the expression of love that I have? Because it's the controlling principle Right? If we seek to please men, then we are not the servant of Christ, Galatians 1.10. If, if we've been entrusted with God's truth, we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines the heart. Right? So here's the, I mean, the basic question if, is if it doesn't matter what you do, then why would Paul say we try to speak a certain way because we're examined before the God who examines our heart? Right? So practically, the outworking of our obedience, the growth of the Christian life, we have an eye toward our Master that we want to have Him honored in the way we live and carry it out in that way. And, and sometimes, uh, sometimes folks can, uh, to, can take a, a good doctrine and twist it in a way that contradicts other good doctrines. And, and biblically balanced is holding the truth of God in such a way that we are honoring all that God has said. My, my righteousness, which has, get, has come to me as a gift from God, credited to my account, can never be tarnished because it's Christ. Right? There is no condemnation, now I dread right? My life working out the regeneration that God has worked into me is a matter of I need to obey Christ because it's pleasing to God. And God doesn't, uh, doesn't turn a blind eye to that as his child, Right, Because Hebrews says every child the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he does it so that we might be partakers of his holiness. That it might bear the peaceful root of righteousness. 
right? The, the reality of it is, is that God will try to shape and mold my life for Christ to remove those things which are not pleasing to him so that I cultivate that which is the character of Christ. That's the outworking of it. And so Paul is talking to people. I'm trying to be really clear to set it in the right context so we don't get this twisted. Paul says in chapter 1 that he, he knows God's choice of them. Right? He knows they're God's people because they receive the Word. Right? The Gospel didn't come to them in Word only, but in spirit and power and full assurance. And they became imitators of, of the Lord and of Paul. Right? So, so there was a real change that happened in them that, that showed Paul that these, these were folks in whom the Word of God had done its work. They received it, chapter 2, verse 13. Not as just the Word of men, but as is indeed the Word of God, which works effectually in those who believe. So they saw the work of grace in them. And now he's going, listen, here's how you ought to live that. Right? Your, your relationship to God should be demonstrated by your heart to want to honor and obey Him. To walk in such a way that is pleasing to God and, and to, to bring honor to Him. Not because their salvation hangs in the balance as to whether or not they please God and He's going to let them through the pearly gates. It's, it's, it's here's what God has done for you, so walk worthy of it. Honor Him, please Him. Because God is not pleased uh, with with the disobediences of it, and and there there will be God's work. You know, just uh, I don't I'm, I'm I'm boring down deeply on this, but I just want to make sure we're thinking about it. Right? Was David justified by faith? Yes. All right, and we know that because that's the way it always is theologically. But Romans chapter four makes it very clear. David was justified by faith. So he had a standing with God of righteousness that was credited to him. Did David's immorality with Bathsheba displease the Lord? Did it bring consequences into his life? That's the point I'm making. You can be here this morning justified by the grace of God and therefore enjoy a standing with God which cannot be revoked. So so you're not, if you're entangled in sin, I'm not saying to you, so here's what you need to sort of get yourself back into a position of justification. No. Justification is a gift from God received by faith. Right, We receive it. We don't earn it. We don't achieve it. It is the gracious, free gift of God credited to our account. But it does not come with a free from the law, you know, so let's go sin. Right? It actually, it actually captures our hearts so that now we recognize, given the ugliness of sin, which costs the death of my Lord and Savior, how can I how can I live in it? I need to pursue the path that God wants me to. And that's what Paul's appealing to here. He's appealing to them on it. And here's here's a probably a good word of or, or a good example for us. Notice what he says in the parenthetical comment. 
uh, if you have New American Standard, just as you actually do walk it. There's an affirmation here. He's, he's pleased that they are already following this principle to some degree. He's trying to affirm them and encourage them in that and urge them to excel still more, right? And, and this is, uh, this is a part I sometimes we need to think about because people, people who are deeply entangled in battles with sin, right? Sometimes don't see the the work of God's grace that's been at at work in them, right? The devil wants them to be full of despair and discouragement, wants them to feel as if all they are is a failure, and so why even try give up? Right, you're never going to change. This is never going to go away. You're never going to make it, and and that's the the whispering attack of the evil one. And Paul, actually, even for people that we might look at and go, "What's wrong with you people?" would affirm the grace of God in their lives. Right? I mean, think of Corinth. Right? How would you have started the letter of First Corinthians? What is wrong with you, you losers? I mean, that's that's. We'd be inclined to, but Paul starts by affirming the evidence of God's grace in them, even though he knows he's going to be hitting them with like massive challenges, right? But but he knows God has been at work, and he wants them to see that God has been at work. And so Paul says to these these newly converted uh, believers, "Hey, listen." You're walking like this. Let me encourage you, keep pressing on. God is at work. Keep responding to it. And sometimes we need to make certain that we keep that disposition. It doesn't mean we don't exhort. It doesn't mean that we don't, if we have to, uh, try to confront, to convict someone of sin, like Matthew 18 says, right? We go to them and convince them of their sin. But we also need to have a heart that is actually looking to see change, not just like take a pound of flesh out, right? Our, our job is not just to hammer people. It's actually to help people. And that's the way Paul, Paul is doing it. But then notice he anchors the exhortation in the authority from which it comes, right? I, I, uh, verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And that Again, if you have NASB, it's in italics, meaning they've inserted the word authority. But I think it, it, it does a good job of trying to capture what it is. It's literally, we gave you through the Lord Jesus, right? And, and so what Paul's saying is, the commands that we gave you have come from the Lord. Because we're, we're I'm an apostle, we're a messenger of God. So this is rooted in the authority of the Lord for our lives. It's not just the, the words of Paul. I mean, this is, this is God's will. And, and he says it here, and he's going to circle back to it at the end of the passage uh, because he wants them to understand that this is truth revealed from God to control their lives. All right? So, so the, the exhortation is, is done in an affectionate, brotherly kind of way, aiming to call them to walk in a manner that's pleasing to God, with an affirmation, as you do walk, excel still more, and then he roots it in the authority, right? We gave you these commands in the Lord Jesus, which is interesting if you're familiar with uh, the history of Thessalonica in terms of Paul's ministry. 
right? From Acts, Paul was not in Thessalonica a long time. I mean, it says he, he, uh, he disputed in the synagogue for three Sabbath days, so that could be as short as 15 days, right? First week in the Sabbath, day one, day eight, that's the second, day 15, the third Sabbath. And I think he was there longer than that, but, but even if you extend it out sometime, he wasn't there very long. And here's where we get a window into Paul's evangelistic and discipleship ministry. We know from chapter 1 that he had taught them about the return of Christ. They're waiting for a son from heaven who rescues us from the wrath to come. He, he gave them commands about sexual purity. Right, because verse two is pointing back to those. Right, you know what commands we gave you. So early discipleship from Paul said, "Hey, you have to change some of this pagan sensuality because of the call of God to be His holy people." All right, so he didn't. He didn't go. Hey, let me give you. A, you know, three years worth of discipleship training, and then and then all of a sudden drop the bomb like at the third. Okay, now you got to stop that sex stuff, right? He actually incorporated the call to purity in in the early stages of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and that's because of what he's going to say in verses three through the first part of verse six, because this now he explains out what God's will is. Notice verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So uh, in, in terms of sort of defining it, God's will is their sanctification. They are to, to be holy or set apart to God in that regard. And, and, it, and I think what we'd have to say is not the entirety of God's will, it's one portion of God's will. And I think he indicates that by, by having uh, uh, an indefinite argument article here, right? Because he's going to say in chapter 5, this is the will of God and everything give thanks. Right? So he's, he's actually saying, listen, this is what God wants from you as his people, your sanctification. God's will is tied to that. Because they have been set apart to God, God wants them to be set apart from sin and and to pursue that. And God's ultimately accomplishing that uh, in in his own work. Uh, Look at the end of the book, chapter 5, because verse 23 would show you again where God is going in this. Uh, Paul has a prayer wish here at the end of the book, desire for them. Now may the God of peace, 523, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so Paul's prayer is that this process that God is working in them of sanctification will be brought to completion. And then comes verse 24, a verse that has often been dislocated from its context, but but is true nonetheless, right? Faithful is he who calls you, he will also bring it to pass. What will he bring to pass? The sanctification of verse 23, right? He's praying, may God do this. Faithful is he who calls you who will also do it, right? Paul's confident that those who are Christ 
they will be brought to this place of glorification or complete sanctification where, where sin is no longer a part of their existence. And so that's, that's all through this book, this sanctification that Paul longs for them to have, and which God began at, at their conversion, it's to be carried out. And so here's that middle window, right? This is God's will, your sanctification. You, you need to realize what God desires for His people is that they be holy, they be set apart to Him. Now what Paul does, if you go back to chapter 4, is Paul begins to develop out what that means. He starts to tell us details about this sanctification. And you can see them marked off in the text uh, within uh, the word that. There's three of them. That you abstain from sexual morality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no one, no man, transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. So I want to just unpack these a little bit. The first is no immorality. Right? The, the word translated sexual immorality here is fornication, and and refers to any type of sexual sin, not merely pre or extramarital. I mean, it's it's the basic, general word for for sexual sin, right? And and so what we need to do is uh, have a clear understanding of what the scriptures. Uh, speak to us about that because our world has worked hard to try and subdivide it into categories so that you can have more and more permission before you actually commit immorality. Right? I mean, we have a famous, you know, famous, infamous uh, history in our country with a president who was trying to demonstrate this, right? To, to, you know, define what is is, because there was sexual sin that was happening, but it wasn't full sexual immorality. So therefore, well, maybe it's something different. Okay, what he was reflecting is the pattern of our culture, right? And and you can have you can have that scenario like, well, so where do you cross the line? And, and that kind of an approach is intended to try and push off immorality to farther down the line. So I'm okay here. And, and that won't work in terms of a biblical concept of pornea or fornication. right? That, that it, is, it is any kind of sexual sin which is outside of the boundaries and guidelines of God's Word. And, and we need to realize that that's something that God says is not to be true of those who are believers. It's not His will. Right? He, does, he wants His people to live inside the boundaries, which would mean uh, certainly within the boundaries of one woman and one man for one lifetime. Right? That that's the, the pattern uh, as the, the general pattern and and the relationship 
within the marriage is honorable and undefiled. So we don't want to have a view that says that the physical relationship is God's concession to our sin natures. Not at all. It's a good thing. right? It's actually a spiritual responsibility inside of that husband-wife relationship. 1 Corinthians 7 says that, that the regular the regular fulfillment of the marriage relationship is actually God's will. So, so don't hear anything in here that says, well, sexual activity is somehow surrendered to our baser nature, and God wants us to live at a higher plane than that. That's, that's hogwash. That's the Greek word for it, right? It's hogwash. right? God's plan is for the proper enjoyment of the blessing that he has given of of union. It's when we take the good gift that God has given and twist it in ways that are contrary to his will, that is outside of his boundary, or not according to his instruction. That's where the problem is. And, And God's will for the believer is always not to do that, right? So, so you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing what people will tell you they have peace about, right? I mean, well, you know, I just have, I, I, I just, I have peace about this relationship. And, and it's like, uh, you know, I'm, I don't know what you're talking about by peace, but I know it can't be from God because God says no, Right? It's, it's not inside the boundaries of God's will. So there cannot be any divine peace in the midst of disobedience to him. Right? So we just, no matter what erosion of our culture, right? And, and, and I've, I'm trying to frame it carefully uh, to, to be, uh, be clear with the scriptures without being uh, profane about it, right? Treating it as too common. That's the that's the concept of profanity, right? You're making things that ought to be sanctified, profane. You bring them down to the gutter level. So I'm trying to talk clearly without it. But if it's one man and one woman, then that means anything other than that is outside of God's will. Right? It doesn't matter what people say about, you know, desire, orientation, or anything. Right, that that if this is God's will, right, then you can't use God to defy His will. Well, God made me this way, right? Or I'm, uh, you know, over the course of years, I mean, it's just like I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just different. I have extraordinary desires, or I have whatever. And essentially, they're arguing from their fallen nature to a position that they want to describe as actually being divinely prescribed. And that's, that's a backward way of going, right? Our experience doesn't establish our theology or our ethics, right? Our theology and ethics have to come from the revelation of God. This is the authority of God. And here's what he says, I made, I made humans to bear my image as male and female, and so that together they can reflect the glory and image of God, and outside of that is contrary to the will of God, right? And outside of that would be, 
uh, not that appropriate male-female. It would also be pre the covenant that God has given or even outside of that covenant. All right, so there, there's, there's not, uh, there, it's just, we, we just really have to not rationalize and justify all of the ways people are trying to escape the clarity of God's word on this. Right, God has spoken, and that's his will. And so we need to, rather than rationalize about our sins in this area, we need to repent of them. Right? We, need, we need to just uh, humble ourselves before God and acknowledge that we've made choices which are contrary to his will, and we go to the advocate that we have before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Right? We, don't, we don't do penance. We don't try and work off the guilt in some way. We go to the fountain that can cleanse us. We confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us. Right? So, so we need to realize that there is clarity in God's word about this. The, people pile up words to make it seem like there's not clarity, but th- there is clarity. It's God's will. There's a, if I could put it this way, there's a box drawn by the Bible. <laughs> and if you want to know God's will regarding sexual issues, it's inside the box. It's not outside the box, right? It's God's will is no sexual immorality. And, and there's not justification for violating the will of God on that, right? And, and um, I'm, I'm sort of standing in place right here, right? You know, if, if the sermon was sort of jogging forward and now all of a sudden you're seeing me, I'm just jogging in one spot, all right? Because, because the reality of it is, is that this is a sin that people are prone to hide, right? And, 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 and it probably it flourishes beneath calluses in our conscience, right? So, so somebody taking sexual pleasure from some person other than their wife, Right, whether that's uh, virtual or in real presence, right, is violating the will of God, and and no amount of rationalization is going to bring that sin inside the boundary line. It's outside of God's will, and and you you need to you need to listen to the convicting work of the Spirit through His Word. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, from pornea, from, from any kind of fornication. Okay, Because that, that call from God is a gracious call. Right? It's, it's actually not the voice of some, some tyrant trying to restrict you from what's best for your life. It's actually the voice of a gracious God who made us and knows where real joy is found. So don't believe the lies of the serpent that God actually isn't good and his restriction for you isn't good. Right? That's the devil's lie. 
He doesn't want you to have this good thing that will make you wise. Right? God's, God's being an ogre and a tyrant from keeping you from enjoying this. Right? Don't believe the devil's lies. Believe the promise and word of God that real joy is found in relationship with him and obedience, and so you trust him. Right? And and you don't surrender to it. Right? It's immoral and therefore contrary to the will of God. But as the word often does, it it goes deeper than that. Right? It drives down inside of us. Look at the next thing that Paul talks about here. Right? First, first detail connected to the Will of God, our sanctification, is that you abstain from sexual morality. The second, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So here's the, the label I'd put on it, no sensuality. All right? And uh, the concern that Paul has is found in those words, know how to possess his own vessel. And that is, um, I, it's a euphemistic... E- any way you interpret it, it's sort of a euphemistic expression. Some take it, and, and it's not without some merit, as in, and you may have a translation as a footnote, uh, how to acquire a wife in sanctification and honor. Right? So, so that's a possible interpretation. I'm not inclined toward that. Uh, I'm inclined toward this. It's a euphemism for how we use our bodies, right? Possess our vessel and sanctification is actually sort of a euphemistic expression about our bodies with regard to this aspect of it, right? He's, he's just like in 1 Corinthians 7, when it says it's, you know, he quotes, I think, the Corinthians and says, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. That's a euphemism for more than just like a pat on the back or a handshake, right? He's talking about a sexual activity. And that's why then he moves to, but because of immorality, here's why God's given marriage, right? So, so um, uh, normal, civilized human communication tends to take things and say them in ways that are not crass, right? And so Paul is here saying something in sort of a euphemistic way of, so you need to learn how to control your body in such a way that is in sanctification and honor. And so the characteristics of how this is done, there's positive in sanctification and honor. Since the believer is called to holiness and to honor God, the use and control of our bodies must fulfill this purpose. And I've alluded to Romans 1, and you probably know Romans 1, but if you watch the trail of what happens in Romans 1, Right when they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness and they turn toward the creation rather than the Creator, what happens? They are given over to things that are dishonorable. Right, that's the negative flip side of what he's talking about here. That it's possible for you actually to possess your vessel in dishonor by giving yourself to the degrading sins of this world. Or you can possess your vessel in sanctification and honor. That is that which is inside of the design of God and honors the Creator. 
right? It's, it's oriented toward him because it's possible for us to dishonor God by disobeying his commands or uh, going contrary to his design, right? So we need to recognize that. And, and the body was made for God's honor and therefore should be used only in ways that honor him. Paul says the same thing in the first letter of Corinthians. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And I said a little bit about this last night, so I'm not going to unpack it again. But, but the, you know, the, the philosophical conflict between body and spirit as if one is material and therefore evil and the other is immaterial, so it's good, that's not rooted in the Scriptures. Right there, there's nothing in the scriptures that would make bodies inherently sinful. Adam had one before he fell. Jesus had one without sin. We will be raised in glorified bodies conformed to the image of Christ. Being in a body is not sinful. Right? Using that body contrary to the will of God is sinful. It dishonors the Creator, and so He wants us to recognize that. We can't, um, and this happens at times, right? It, it can seem like crazy and convoluted, but uh, there's just too many examples of this in the history of, of God's people, even going to the New Testament. Right? In 1 Corinthians 5, there's a man involved in a relationship with his stepmother. And, and the church at Corinth, rather than being broken about it, is puffed up, Paul says. So most sort of take that is, is this, this person says, well, hey, look what God, you know, God wants me to be doing this. And so they're like, oh, well, great. And, and so the Spirit is being used as a justification to do something contrary to the will of God. And that's, I mean, that's, people have manipulated and abused that throughout church history because they got this wrong, is that you, you can't really be, uh, have a heart and inner person obedience to Christ that, that is joined to an outer person disobedience or rebellion again. As if you're like sort of schizophrenic, Two yous, you know, the inner you and the outer you, and the inner you can be okay while the outer you is doing something wrong. Now, you are you, right? Body and soul need to be for the Lord, right? You need to honor Him in your body, and, and that's tied to sanctification. Notice the, the negative way in which He says it, because I think this is the part that can help us see what's going on. And in fact, why I called it no sensuality. He says, not in lustful passions. Right? Not in lustful passions. So there's a kind of life that could actually be controlled by lustful passions, and that stands opposite to sanctification and honor. And, and, and this is probably where a lot of the battlefront is in our day. We talked about it a little bit last night, right? People can, uh, people can be giving themselves over to sensuality uh, often in the privacy of life, right? So 
So, you know, you encounter them, you see them, they seem like a fine, upstanding, holy, sanctified person, right? They're, they're a good guy. But, but when they slide, you know, slide into their cubicle or go back into their back room at their house or they, they make sure they're down in the basement with their phone or their iPad, they're feeding themselves on, on filth. Right? They're, they're actually having themselves controlled by lustful passions because they've created an appetite for something which is contrary to the will of God. They might be going, well, I, I'm not committing sexual immorality. I'm, I'm still inside the boundary line. But what's happening inside of them is feeding passions which are governed by sinful, illicit desires. They're becoming sensual from the inside out in that regard. And that's, that's the pattern that sin follows, right? And, and here's the sad part about it is, is that um, you know, long before they actually step outside the boundary, they have been cultivating a heart and appetite for illicit behavior. Right, I mean, the Puritans used to say it this way: "Man's will generally follows his imagination." Right, so you you think about sin before you act on sin, and we see that repeated again and again in scriptures. Right, I mean, it's uh, pardon the alliterations, but it, it is you know you look and lust, and then you leap. Right, or or you consider something, then you begin to crave it before you commit it. And, and that's, that's really sort of the pattern. I mean, think of David with Bathsheba, right? He saw her and desired her and then did it. Or think of Samson, right? He saw a woman among the Philistines and then desired her and then acted on, or Achan. He saw the goods that were associated with Jericho wanted them, and then took them. Or even all the way back to the garden, they saw the tree that it was good for food. Right? And they wanted it. And what you have to recognize is the battle for your soul doesn't start really outside. It starts inside with what appetites you cater and what appetites you cultivate. And and if you're... If you're thinking it's just a matter of building the right firewalls, right? If I just get the, you know, if I get covenant eye, I'm not saying anything against it, but um, if I get covenant eyes, I'll be okay, right? Or if I have a, a you know, a group of people who are going to ask me 12 hard questions every time I see them, it's going to solve it, right? Then we're, we're actually thinking the fight against sin works from the outside in when sin is making its fight from the inside out, right? And we have to, we have to do a both and. I'm not trying to say you don't do the other. I'm saying there's got to be a fight that we're recognizing is about the driving passions of our life. Are, they, are we controlled by lustful passions? Right? And that's the mark of the old man. Ephesians 4.22. I mentioned 24 last night, right? Put on the new man, which in... The likeness of God has been created in holiness, righteousness, the truth. 22 says, put off the old man, 
which is being corrupted according to the lusts of deceit. The pattern of life outside of Christ is a progressive corruption by the deceitful lusts of this world. That's why, look at the last part, the last part of his statement in verse 5, right? He says, like the Gentiles who do not know God. You know who lives in lustful passions? The people who don't know God. Right? Because that's 424 or 422 of Ephesians is put off the old man, which is being corrupted according to the deceitful lust. It's the pattern of life. If I could put it this way, it's um, the, the life outside of Christ, and Lord willing, we'll look at this in the last session, but life outside of Christ is lived to gratify the impulses of the flesh. Right? I mean, that's, that's the governing operation of it. If we're in the flesh, which no believer is, in, in an ultimate sense, Romans 8. right? But it is a life that is controlled by a perception of things that has a ceiling which excludes God. Right? And, and, and in some ways, you could boil it down to, you know, have a blast while you last. Get as much as you can. Right? Gratify your desires. Satisfy your impulses. That's the corrupting nature of life outside of Christ. And Paul's saying here, hey, here's God's will for you. You need to live in your body in a way that is not controlled by the same operating system as those who don't know Christ. He'd say it this way in Romans 8, because of the promise of the resurrection, you are under no obligation to fulfill the desires of the flesh. Right? If you didn't have the hope of resurrection, then you should have a blast while you last. I mean, go for it. There's nothing better for you than, than just to enjoy the satisfactions that this world offers. But since you know Christ and you have the promise of resurrection, you're not obligated to live that way any longer. You can actually say no to things because you know there's something greater that God has for you. Right? There's something better promised for you in the hope of the resurrection. And so, so Paul says, listen, you know God. Don't live like that. Don't, don't let your control system be the gratification of your sinful desires. Don't feed them. Don't cater them. Don't live according to that standard. Right? That's not the will of God for us. We should be people who instead of giving into impulses and passions are controlled by, in fact, truth and principle. Right? Put on a new man which has been created in the likeness of God and holiness and righteousness of the truth. That's contrast to lust of deceit. I operate by the character of God and His will for me. That's the thing that should control me. I, I do the thing that God wants. Look at the last, the, the third element of this, no selfishness in verse 6, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. I call it selfishness because clearly you're doing something towards someone else. And uh, the, the sort of sharp turn that Paul takes here has caused some people to think he's shifting topic, right? Now, that transgress and defraud, and they go, so it's like, don't steal from people either kind of a thing. 
I don't think that's the best way to take it because there's nothing in the text actually that demands a sharp turn. The singularity and definiteness of the matter, right? He says, in the matter, certainly seems to point to the thing I've just been talking about. Right? So in this matter, don't transgress and defraud. Not, don't transgress and defraud in the matter, and he never tells us what the matter is. Right? I think so. It actually is talking about in this area of sexual sin. And, and the parallel use that we've seen here in the, in, in the Greek, it's infinitives. That, that, that are, are showing the idea that's coming down here. And the progression of the section is as if it's about the same subject. So I take it to be that Paul is saying that, that one element of God's will here is to confront the selfishness of sexual sin. Right? That we might think, well, this is just like a sin I'm committing, and it's just me, but the, the very nature of this sin is that it actually is involving other people. Right? You, you know, we love to talk about, uh, our culture loves to talk about sex as love in a way that clearly is contrary to Scripture. Right? If you're outside of the boundaries of God's will, you're not actually demonstrating love. Right? You, you aren't loving somebody when you are leading them into a sin that courts the judgment of God. Right? It's, not, it's, not, it's certainly not a godly, Christ-like love, which actually seeks the best interest of somebody. Right? So you're not seeking the best interest of somebody when you're leading them away from God's will. So that, that would mean it's, it's a transgression against them and it's defrauding them. And it's possible that what he means by that defraud is, is that you're, you're taking something that belongs to somebody else for yourself. Right? If marriage is supposed to be the place where God has given this relationship, if two people who are not married are engaging in this, then let's, I'm just going to use it this way. The man is taking something of the woman's that actually belongs to somebody else, her future husband. Right? He's actually taking fruit that's not his. He's, he's sinning in that way. You're actually now stepping outside of something that is just like a private personal sin that you're committing before God. You're actually doing harm to somebody else as well. You're leading them contrary to the will of God. You are defiling and defrauding. And, and Paul says that that's not to be a part of the Christian's life. You can't take something to which you have no right, and you cannot cross boundaries to territory that is not your own. That's why it's transgress and defraud. God's clear about this. It's sinful in the sexual area to cross those boundaries and take the rightful possession of someone else. So so we can't do it. So, So here, no immorality, no sensuality, no selfishness in this uh, pursuit of this sin. So let me just say a word to parents uh, about what maybe you could help your kids with. Right? Here's the standard I'd say with them. 
to my, I had four, I have four sons. They're all married now. Uh, but it is don't do it, right? That's no sexual morality. Don't start it or stir it up, not in lustful passion, right? So, so you 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 uh, you can't turn on the engine before you can drive the car, right? My dad used to tell me in different kind of context, you don't you don't lather up unless you plan to shave, right? And and we've got a whole world. We've got a whole world that's lathering people up for something they're not supposed to be doing. And we need to, we need to incorporate into the culture of our lives and our homes, hey, we're not going to stir up lustful passions. Right? We're not, we're not going to let that feed the desires of our heart, and then we let it feed and feed and feed, and then when something happens, we go, man, I didn't see that coming. It's like, Hello? You know, if this, if the, if I mean, I didn't say last night, but the, the average age of exposure to pornography in it was like a massive study by the National Institute of Health. It was like 14 years old, and most of us. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think I was younger than that the first time I stumbled across a magazine. We, our family, was uh, out using the boat of the doctor my mom worked for, and we're using his apartment, and I'm. I'm in, uh, you know, I'm getting changed in his room and there's a whole stash of Playboys underneath his bed. I'm just a little kid and I'm like, whoa. Right? So all of a sudden you're as a little, you know, young man, all of a sudden you're exposed to this stuff. And, and nowadays it's, it's, you know, obviously that you had to have someone that go buy, you know, print it, buy it, put it. Like it's just bombing at people. Right? So we, we go, and no way you can't have that. But then we, you know, watch TV or a movie where it's just being pumped in as well. We're feeding the heart. Don't, don't get the process started with those kinds of desires. Guard against them. And certainly in terms of a, 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 a relationship, right? You have an obligation, not just for your own heart, but also for the heart of the other person, not to transgress and defraud. Don't, don't stir it up in somebody else. Right? So, you know, I mean, I spent seven years as a youth pastor, and so I was like, so how far can we go? Can we do this? Can we do that? And everyone wants you to, you know, give them some legal stance on what you can do, right? You can, you know, you can hold pinkies, but you can't hold hands, or, you know. I mean, they, they want some kind of law. And, and I'd always keep coming back to is listen, here's God's will. Right? You cannot engage in anything that would be sexual with somebody else that's not your spouse. Out. You can't relate to each other in such a way that you're actually stirring up the desire for it. You're starting to cultivate lustful passions for this person. And you can't be doing that in somebody else either. So you might go, well, it doesn't bother me. Well, that doesn't solve the problem. Is it actually cultivated in somebody else as well? Because God's will for us is clear on it. All right? And I'm going to land the plane real fast with 6 through 8, okay? Because I know you guys are looking at a break, and, and so am I. Here's some encouragement, right? God will discipline. Chapter 6, or chapter 4, verse 6. And it says, for, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. So, 
So the immediate cause seems to be sexual sins, and the real ultimate cause of that is because of God's God's discipline and judgment of them. Now, he's described as an avenger. And so the question obviously comes up is, you know, in what sense will God avenge the sexual sins of those who commit them? And so, we, like in our day, we like to get really precise. Does that mean eschatological or is that temporal? And I'd go, yes. In this sense, I don't think any genuine believer will face eschatological punishment, right? Because God will be at work in them to bring them to repentance, right? They're not going to, because it's, it's the nature of regeneration, 1 John 3, that they cannot go on practicing that unrighteousness. God will be at work in them, which means he will discipline his children. I go back to David. Right? David was a justified man, and God dealt with him about his sin. Right? Every, every son that the father loves, he disciplines. So, so we cannot go uh, toss that aside and think, you know, uh, we can sin with ease because God has saved us. Now, if God has redeemed us, he has not only given us a standing of righteousness, he's given us a new heart, and he's given us the indwelling spirit to fight against the flesh. There will be a war inside, and God will win that. And part of what he will do is the process of disciplining his people. And, and believers ought to be going, why would I take on God? Right? Am, am, I, am I to take on God? And if someone can sin without grief, without repentance, without any conviction, then, then there's a warning here to be heeded, right? Because Paul has to say that to believing churches, congregations, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians chapter 5, because as much as we want to have the membership of our assemblies be truly regenerate, we don't have a regeneration detector at the door. Right? It doesn't beep. Oh, this one's got the Spirit. Right? So, so, so God graciously gives warnings so that people won't presume and awaken one day under the judging hand of God because they actually never experienced the new birth. And so that reality is there. So, so it's an encouragement because of the consequences of disobedience. But it's also, look at verse 7, the purpose of our salvation. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. And that call there is the same call in chapter 5, verse 24. Faithful who calls you. Right? It's the, the call of God to salvation. You were called to sanctification, not impurity. There's something about the call of God that is to take us, in the words of Jesus, out of the world and into fellowship with Him. Right? They are not of the world any longer. Right? You've, you've sanctified them by the word, continue that work. So when we think about what God did in calling us to Christ, it was not for impurity. We weren't given salvation so we can run wild. We actually were called to reflect the holiness and character of Christ. 
But also then verse 8, it talks about God's rule over us through the Scriptures. Notice he says, for he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to us, right? So what Paul's written here is the will of God. So if you reject it, I mean, if you... I don't think you are, but you sat here and said, "Well, that's just your opinion." And I can, I can, I can, I can sleep with my girlfriend, and there's, you know, it's no problem to it. This text says, "You're not rejecting me; you're rejecting God." And not only are you rejecting His authority through the Word, you are actually fighting. If you are genuinely a, a believer, the Spirit dwells in you. You're fighting against the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Right, So your pushback is you kicking against the goads of God's grace to pull you out of it. Okay? It's not, it's not uh, it cannot be ours to eliminate. Right? So, so here's the, the modern hubris and arrogance is to say the Bible was written so long ago they didn't know what we know or it was so trapped in a you know, misogynist, patriarchal, whatever kind of culture that it, it can't speak truth to us in our day. We're more enlightened. We're more understanding. We have better understanding of, of the dynamics of gender and identity. So, you know, we can relativize the Word of God. And, and here's what the timeless truth of God is. This is my will. Right? Here is my will for human living. No immorality, not in lustful passion, not transgressing and defrauding others in it. Okay? And that's not, uh, that, that is, I think, a clear, principled, timeless kind of truth driven because, because we love the Lord, because God's called us to pursue this, He's given us the resources we need. Right? He didn't throw us in the deep end of the pool and go figure out how to swim. He gave us the Spirit. He gave us His Word. He's given us the resources that we need to grow in Christ and honor Him in this. So, so let's pursue it for His glory. We have promises. We love Him. Let's live out what He said. Let's pray. Father, thank You. For the clarity of your word, give us hearts that, that appreciate and love that and want to live out the truth that you've revealed. Uh, Lord, if there's anyone here that's really fighting with some of these things and seeming to lose the battle, may they have hope through the scriptures. May your spirit work in them so that they would abound in hope by his power, but also help them to, to seek out the kind of help and encouragement that you would provide in, in the assembly of your people to, to engage the fight. Or the devil has taken down so many uh, because he is constantly on the prowl. Help us to realize this world is no friend of grace and that these fleshly lusts wage war against our souls. So we're in the fight whether we realize it or not. So help us to awaken to the fight, armed with your word and the work of your spirit to, to please you by living purely in a wicked world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.